Welcome to the next segment with Jill and Jen. I'm Jill. And I'm Jen. Hi, Jen. Hey. Long time no see. Well, I feel like we saw each other pretty recently. Um, I just prior said that to that. Because <laughs> I say that because we say that every time we do this podcast. It's never a lie, though. Um, I did see you two days ago, mm-hmm. um, and then a week before that. But before that, I didn't see you for months. So I feel like kind of long time no see. We should take up letter writing correspondence. <laughs> I feel like that's the level of where our friendship's at. Dearest Jill. I was going to say, dearest Jen, you beat me to it. Obviously we're in the same. Oh my gosh. This would give me reason to buy the like wax seal stuff that I wanted to try for us so I long. I want a wax seal so badly. So, and yet have no use for it. But if we started letter writing. Will Canada Post charge us extra for the postage on that? We probably have the wax seal that the the note and put it inside an envelope and mail it. Yeah, but I think it would make the envelope extra heavy. You'd have to put two stamps on. Is that what our society is right now? Like <laughs> <laughs> the outrage! I can't wax seal. <laughs> what does this world come to? Like, surely this saves us like better for the environment in some way. Maybe it's not. I mean, well, here's the thing. Thinking about better for the environment, as in, <laughs> follow me, follow me on the straight of thought. Things that we say are better for the environment ultimately are not. Like, this whole outrage against plastic straws, which I wasn't going to get into in this podcast, but here we are, three seconds in, and I'm already talking about it. Um, people are like, we're going to end plastic straws, they're so bad for the environment. Well, I think they are. Yeah, I don't disagree, they are bad for the environment, but the alternatives are things like, Starbucks now has a sippy cup lid. That's like a plastic sippy cup lid. And it's like, oh, don't have to use a straw. It's like, but it's more plastic. Uh, I thought the alternative was like carrying your own metal straw. So like those are one alternative. But the Starbucks response to like no more straws, don't worry. We got a sippy cup lid that is like, as far as I know, is disposable. Just buy, if you're as a dedicated cold drink drinker from Starbucks. You like a good iced tea. Just buy a reusable Starbucks thing. Listen, that's my point, but... What I'm saying is... You get a discount, too. It's just better. <laughs> My point if is you're just... Buying it, if you're buying in bulk, like <laughs> I am, <laughs> with your iced tea. My whole point of this was just to say, um, sometimes in order to fix a problem, we make more problems. Okay, let's bring back wax seals. So, I'm not sure what problem we're fixing. <laughs> the problem is I want to buy a wax seal and I need a reason to do it. And so do you, obviously. Wait, okay. So, do we design our own coat of arms for the... Here's, because I've recently become fascinated. We're back at it with this podcast. We're on tangents, I'm and that's so great. I'm so excited about your, what you're going to say so right now. I've recently become fascinated with the fact that Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, wedding. We all watched it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was fascinated that they had to design a coat of arms for Meghan Markle. As like Why? part of, I think, because members of the royal family need a coat of arms. So did they do one for Kate Middleton? They must have. But I found hers, like, extra fascinating because as an American, it's like, she probably, Kate Middleton, maybe her family had one? I don't know. Um, Do, I feel like, and um, so they were, like, I feel like that many families in the UK have have them, right? Code of arms for, like, throughout history. Like, for example, when I was in Scotland, they, you could look up your name on, like, a list and it has your code of arms. Obviously, it's all built for tourist stuff, but... Like, maybe they already have one for Middleton that existed. I think it's lies, because when I Google that for Maybank, there's, like, five different ones that pop up. Well, obviously, more than one different, like, 
thread of Maybanks. I'm on a real tangent now, though, because also... Because you have your ancestry DNA thing that you just paid <laughs> well, money yes. for. But also, when you Google Maybank, apparently there's a Snape castle somewhere that's connected to the Maybank family. Okay. Like, I'm a wizard, straight up. Can you put a pin in this? Because we're, co- we're going to come back to this later <laughs> in the podcast. Point is, they designed a coat of arms for Meghan Markle, and I was fascinated by the fact, like, obviously they're made up. Like, I don't know why I never thought about this. Like, they're all made up. <laughs> But they like, were, like, divinely given to you yeah. on tablets. It fascinated me, like, that they had to put into this thought into it, like, what symbols would represent her, and, like, how would they fit, like, the United States into it with a symbol, and so I want that for my wax seal. So, I love this idea. I also won't, wouldn't mind marrying into the royal family, Well, can, so. can we just take it, I want to go back for one second. Did Megan have any say in this coat of arms? Because I, this is one thing I did not know about, about the wedding. Um... One thing I didn't follow up on, I should say, because I did know that they made her a coat of arms, but I did no further research on it, which is unlike me. Um, but I was you gotta follow all the Instagram accounts. <laughs> so, let me family. tell you, post-wedding, I now follow, like, the Kensington Royal Family. Oh, yeah. Like, I follow, like, five or six different, like, Royal Instagram accounts, and sometimes they're okay, but sometimes they're just, like... Oh, most of the time, it's... It's just, like, it's a picture of the Queen from, like, 100,000 feet away, and you're like, great, I could look online if I had a better one. And then their Instagram stories... This is a little tangent, but guys... On your Insta stories, too much text, I can't read it in the time that... You gotta rewind it, it's too much. Yeah, and, and if you post, like, a you know, an essay in tiny font, the whole thing, who can read that? Put it in an Instagram post, not in the story. Let me swipe up to go to your website. I'm really... Anyway. <laughs> so that's just a shout-out to the, the Kensington Royal Family uh, Instagram account. I think they hired a new social... I saw a job posting for them hiring a social media person, like, last year. So, I mean, I think it's pretty good. It's just that I was going to say, my feedback to them at this moment would be, stop putting essays in the text. I can't read it. And I want to read it. I want to know what's going on. You know who just got an Instagram? Wow, we're on it. <laughs> <laughs> Princess Eugenie. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Must have just recently got an Instagram, like, at the time. Pause. Aren't they not allowed to have Instagram accounts? Well, that's what's fascinating about mm-hmm. it. Because it makes I think readers. it only happened, like, around the time she got engaged. And it's blue checkmarked, so I assume it's her. Verified. And it's so casual. Like, the, the photos are all, like, fairly nice photos. But... The captions are so casual and normal, I was really taken aback because I thought they weren't allowed to have this. Because I thought that's why Megan had to delete hers, or did she delete hers because she was getting harassment? Possibly, but maybe Maybe she also needed, like, a royal family approved one and not... Her own personal one. Yeah. I don't know. So, does Eugenie... Eugenie? Eugenie. What's her name? (laughs) Eugenie. Eugenie. Does she run her own, or does she have someone running it for her? It seems like she writes the captions herself. But then again, she probably has a personal assistant who does that. So this then becomes the the question of how... The tone of them is very... So my my question then is, how much staff does Princess Eugenie get? Because I know that there... I've read in the past that Prince Charles wanted to reduce the royal family, like, the funding or whatever, the allowances they get to just, like, the direct lineage to the throne. Which means that Princess Eugenie probably wouldn't get a lot of staff. She might get, like... So I would assume you'd have, like, at least a personal assistant. Yeah, you have to, I think, because there's yeah. so many engagements. Yeah. They'd have to have someone to... S- Manage your schedule, at the very yeah. least. And also, like... And your correspondence. Your outfits. And, like, yeah. And those hats, because, as we all know, her hats have been... Well, Eugenie's quite scandalous, because... I know. She's out there with her fashion, but she's also, like, pushes the limits. You know, I love a good British tabloid, because it's trash, trash, trash. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's true. It's so true. And so circa the royal wedding, I was like, falling straight down um, into that wormhole. <laughs> and so I was reading all about the scandals, and I put that in air quotes, because it's not. Like, she'll wear, for example, red lipstick. What? Scandalous. Not a neutral. What? She will wear, show a little cleavage. That is outrageous. Truly Sarah Ferguson's daughter. <laughs> scandal after scandal. Do you know scandal. what? I love Fergie. Who doesn't? She's great. I like her one like Prince Andrew. And I also like... Did you know her and Prince Andrew are together? Again? Well, my tabloid reading tells me, so guys, this is 100% fact checked. So, They've been living together for years. Okay, but okay, but the, I watched a whole series on this. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our new podcast. <laughs> I actually don't think they're together because um, I watched, uh, of course, I watched The Royal Wedding and I watched only, not much of the lead up, probably only about an hour of the lead up, which is... Well, they did arrive separately and sit separately. Yeah, but I don't know if you heard the CBC commentary um, as uh, Sarah Ferguson walked down to the castle she walked alone and they were saying how she was so brave it must be so hard for her to walk alone and i was like why like well the tablet i was reading was saying that was maybe just more of a front because obviously the queen doesn't love her very much i say obviously but whatever you um, also can't and assume what people know about the royal family because people know very different well, things like <laughs> according to a source close to the royal family i also, I also um, just mean like among our peers and who might listen to this podcast I think that we might be the most invested in, like, <laughs> the royal family of the majority of our friends and acquaintances. So, um... Allegedly, because he's no longer within the first six people in the line of succession, he's now free to marry whoever he wants, so he could remarry Fergie if he wanted so, without the Queen's approval. So a couple years ago, probably, probably ten years ago I'm now at this it. point, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm... The thing is, they clearly have loved each other for so long, because... I'm laughing now thinking about this. Like this I didn't is, know I shipped it. <laughs> this is a huge deviation from what we were going to talk about. I did not um, pre-plan this. But I almost feel like better about it because <laughs> this is really where my heart lies. And yours is obviously as well. Um, but I thought there was a whole thing that uh, they divorced and like they were separated. and But he, he still treated her super well. And like he was always really generous to her. And she never was really cut off. Um, and he st- they still really cared about each other. And they were still good friends. So that's been years as far as I can, I'm concerned. Like, even, like, they both never really, like, saw other people, that at least with public anyway. My memory is hazy on this because this was, this was an old documentary because the focus mm. on them has been, like, off for a very long yeah. time because well. <laughs> we've had births, we've had marriages, we've had we have Prince Philip retired. I mean, we have lots of things going on. And we've had the crown, of course. Yeah. Which has reignited so much of my passion. <laughs> um, Did almost buy a book about. British royalty today. I did, but I, I refrained and bought other books instead. <laughs> I mean, for listeners, uh, you have some of you have seen my shelves and some of you haven't, but either way, um, I have an addiction. I have bought so many books this year. I mean, we're not even fully six months into the year yet. Like We're just in the sixth month. And I have, I think I've bought like 70 books this year or something. Now, for those who don't know, I volunteer with a, a library sale, so I get books for $1.50. So, I haven't spent, like, you know, my entirety of my fortune on all my books, but still, like, I just have a whole shelf of books I haven't read, plus others, and I'm feeling a bit anxious about it because I just want to get through them all. But I can't stop buying them. It's an addiction. It's a real problem. Like, is there a rehab for book buying? There should be one, because I can't stop. Zap! 
podcast has actually all been an elaborate ruse, and this is actually an intervention. <laughs> I've just been slowly building your trust <laughs> for a year. <laughs> it's like, well, it didn't help because today you went with me and bought books. <laughs> I literally told you to buy more. And I had said, I'm not going to go to this book sale today. And you were like, we can go. That is not a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I realized that as I was saying it, I was like, I have made this entire thing up. You still asked me to go to this book right. sale. Right, because I had said to myself, I'm not going to buy books today. And then I looked at you and I said, do you want to go to this book sale? And like you're a like, true addict, you've rewritten history. <laughs> <laughs> to suit your story. Jen, I'm so needy. Oh. Should we get to our actual fixation of the week? Because I do want to talk about this. Oh, yeah. That wasn't it. Uh, I mean, we could... Well, definitely, if, nail us wax seals. Oh, yeah. Or, and or tell us where to get them and help us design our coat of arms. Like, if you have a coat of arms idea... I mean, obviously, James would have a badger in it. Hufflepuff. Oh. Has to. Mine would have a raven, except I hate birds, so I wouldn't have a raven. <laughs> <laughs> so something that gives the vibe of a raven without <laughs> actually including a raven. Something more abstract. So guys, let us know. Uh, weigh in. Send us our designs. Uh, best ones win. I mean... <laughs> we don't, I don't have know. prizes for you. We, we don't have any thought beyond this, but let us know. Um... So my actual fixation for this week, and the reason I want to talk about it is because I can't stop thinking about it, and this is kind of your fault, but also, I recognize, I take ownership for my part of this, but you, you also, <laughs> I think I've come around to take my ownership of this, but I, I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, so. That's beautiful, thank you. I don't, this is not a good thing. <laughs> I haven't slept in six weeks. I will be keeping uh, that segment out of context <laughs> <laughs> for my own use. Um... So, I guess a bit of background. I'm sure people have heard of the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Michelle McNamara is, uh, McNamara is a, um, or was, I should say. She died in 2016. Um, she was obsessed with true crime, and she was, tr- she spent a lot of time researching, doing, uh, trying to find, like, working with cold cases and trying to find... Solve them, basically. Solve them and find killers or whatever whoever was not yet found trying to find them she did a lot of she had an online blog called true crime diary i believe is what it's called um she had she had a huge following of people who were just like her and and uh obsessed with finding the answers to cold cases and her particular fascination was something called the east area rapist the ear uh or the ons the original night stalker am i right in saying this yes uh i can't i remember these acronyms um (laughs) And she uh, she dubbed this killer the Golden State Killer because the names were a bit confusing for a bunch of reasons, so she gave them a name. And she had a huge online following of people who were helping her uh, piece together information, find uh, evidence, and that sort of thing. She was working with detectives. She was working with... Um, As a journalist. Yeah, she was doing a lot of work with it. And um, she was writing a book at the same time. And unfortunately, she died in 2016 before the book was finished, before it was published. Um, and then... Uh, her husband, Patton Oswalt, and two of her friends who were journalists um, decided they wanted to publish this book because she worked so hard on it and she had so much research and it was, she had so much writing and she was so passionate about it um, that they said it would be a shame to not put it out there, at least what she had found. At the time of 2016, um, the killer had not been found, but this book was published in, was it April or May or something, or March, like, or spring? I read it just before Easter, and I think it was fairly new out. Yeah, so it was, I think it was like March. It was yeah. like spring. 
Um, then the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer was found. Uh, he was arrested uh, in May, like two months after it was published, which is crazy. So all this background is to say, um, those who listen to podcasts for a long period of time know that I do not like true crime. I'm uh, a wimp. I'm scared. I don't listen to podcasts. I, I used to listen to podcasts, but not. I'm too scared now to listen to them. I don't really watch shows about it. I generally just try to remain um, happy and <laughs> removed from like <laughs> evil people on the planet. Um, but this book is making a huge splash, and then Jen had read it, and I thought, you know what? He's caught. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this book. I don't know why I decided to read this book. So it was I- very out of character when Jill texted me. And come kind of out of the blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hadn't seen you for months. <laughs> and asked to borrow this book. Truly shocked. Yeah, I also shocked myself. Um, but I decided, I, I was like, I think this is, like, I, I think I want to be part of this cultural moment. Like, I want to be able to read this. I've only heard good things about it. I'm going to read it. Nope, is my <laughs> is what I say to that. Um, in terms of writing... Truly, and parts of it are exceptionally well written. Um, really compelling. Couldn't put it down, which is the problem. Because it was terrifying. The I won't go into details about the uh, the killer's MO because it's graphic and it's also horrifying. There um, are other podcasts that will do that for you. Uh, My Favorite Murder. Or read her book. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're really interested. But it, I will say it is truly horrifying. And um, this, I did find it very Moorish, like, I just, like, I wanted to keep reading because it was, like, so well-written, so engaging, so compelling. But I was so scared, and I was I was so gro- grossed out by it, like, by the killer himself. Um, so I texted Jen at many points as I was reading the book, and I just kind of said, I can't believe you gave me this book. Like, what are you thinking? You're a horrible friend. <laughs> why? Why did you let me read this book? Um, so all of that is to say... Um, I want to talk about the writing of this book specifically because what's interesting about this book is that parts of it were published before as an article. Was it in the New York Times or was it in like the New Yorker or something or in some big publication? Los Angeles Times, maybe? Maybe. It was published in some big paper. Parts of this were. Other parts of it were she had already written in preparation for the book that she was working on. Then other parts of it are pieced together from her notes. So some parts of it are like an, an interview that she had done in a car with like a cop or something and it just has... Uh, their dialogue written out and some parts of it are like clearly rough sketches that the editors put together to make it work so I think my feeling about it is there's some parts of it that truly are beautiful like when she talks about her own life and her own past yeah. I was like those parts are so good um, about, her, about her mother growing up and about um, her relationship with Patton and the, her, her husband and her like how her obsession with the killer affects her personal life. Yes. Those parts were exceptional. But I actually found parts where she was talking about the killer to be poorly written, like parts of it. And I think that's probably because it was pieced together. Um, And I think, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, and I guess it's kind of a question. Did they, did the editors actually rewrite parts of it or did they just try to piece it together what she had already had written to keep her, her tone and her style and stuff? I mean, I don't know how much editing was done to the parts she written, but my understanding is that it's fairly like distinct. Like the parts that she wrote are the parts that she wrote. Um, they didn't rewrite her. 
Okay. Now, what kind of editing happens in the publishing process, I'm not sure. But that was my understanding, is that the parts she wrote, they didn't really mess with. Mm-hmm. I think it's... I, my reaction was, I kind of feel like it's a shame that she didn't finish it before she died. Because I think if she could have transported her style of writing about her own life into like the parts about the killer it would have been a way better read for me because I think it would have been less scary for Cyrus but also been more approachable I think and might have softened it a little bit because it is quite graphic and and scary but I think more than anything what this has done for me <laughs> this book is that it has sent me down your rabbit hole where <laughs> I had downloaded every single episode of my favorite murder um, about the Golden State Killer. I started reading about it online. Now I get all these weird ads about, like... What ads would you get? Well, well, for different, like, publications I would never have, like, oh. found before. I was like, not, I would get weird ads. Not for, like, get free hammers. Like, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Ski masks, two for one. <laughs> we laugh because... We're... we're um, it's a horror show. Yeah, so I went down that, and I never listened to the podcast, My Favorite Murder. I know you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that I think we have a bit of, of them in us. <laughs> what are their names again? Georgia. Are you a Georgia or a Karen? <laughs> Georgia and Karen. Um, but their obsession with murderers and stuff to me, and I, didn't, I didn't really pay attention. I've never listened to them before. I listened to one, half one episode, and I think I told you the story about they had a woman call in and say when she was a kid, she had a man jump into her room through a window. Did I tell you this before? I think so, yes. And she called her dad to say, uh, a man just came into my room, and her dad came in the room, it was like middle of the night, and he opened the door and looked around, and he was like, no, like you're dreaming it, there's no one here. And he closed the door, and the man was behind the door, and he stayed in the room and then just left the room again. And that was it. And I was like, that is the scariest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Obviously, the man was not super malicious because he just left. But also, I can't believe that like a dad would just like <laughs> not look around or something or like search better, like turn on the light. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, get your shit together. So this has just sent me down a true crime uh, hole that I just didn't know I wanted or could handle, and I'm feeling really um, it's making me really jumpy to the point where. I wake up in the middle of the night and I think I hear a noise. That could be anything. It could be my cat. It could be the general noises of life that normally don't bother me. And I'm like, it's it's East Area Rapist. He's come through my window. He's not come through my window. He's caught. He's 78 years old. He lives in Los Angeles or wherever he lives. California. He's not coming to get me. But I believe he is. Or someone like him. <laughs> could be copycat. It's interesting because I will say... I think I agree with you in the book itself. Like, the parts I was most fascinated, as I often am when I read books like this, um, just the process of writing and researching something of this nature. Uh, one of my other favorite true crime books, for a lot of reasons, this is only one, uh, is On the Farm by Stevie Cameron, which is a Canadian one um, based on Willie Picton in BC uh, and she came when I was in undergrad studying journalism she came to our journalism school because she's a or was a fairly well-known journalist I think she mostly writes books now um, and she kind of walked us through the process of like researching like how she actually organized her research to write she wrote two big books 
um, on the Willie Picton case. And it was fascinating to see how one organizes that much information Mm. and tries to organize it not just in a way that makes sense chronologically or theme-wise or topic, especially in a case like um, the Golden State Killer or Willie Picton, where there's so many victims as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But also how you then take all that information and try to organize it into a narrative because you are writing a book. And it was just fascinating to me. And I think with Michelle McNamara, you also get insight into how this becomes an obsession. Like, you mm-hmm. fall into this, and it becomes kind of a, a conflict, which I think a lot of us who have an interest in true crime kind of have sometimes, which is you fall into this wormhole of it being so fascinating and so interesting, and then also realizing how horrifying and gruesome this is to be fascinated by it and kind of pulling yourself back and trying to reinsert the humanity right. into it. Um, and you can kind of see Michelle McNamara struggling with that through yeah. the book, and it's such interesting insight, and those were by far the most powerful parts. I thought the most interesting part of the whole book was when she talks about her anniversary, and she said her husband gives her, like, um, an illustration or something of her holding, um, like, a, a her her publication of her article about the Golden State Killer. Or so, so it's just something related to Golden State Killer. And she says, I realized that the past two years, my anniversary gift had been related to the Golden State Killer. And she said, I didn't even give think of giving anything for my husband. And I'm like, that was the most interesting part to me, because you're right, it's complete obsession. The point where you forget everything else in your life that's equally important. It was interesting, because I think I, I've listened to some interviews... And if you've listened to the My Favorite Murder episodes, both Golden State Killer, you might have heard this one as well, because they do uh, a live kind of show with Patton Oswalt mm-hmm. and some of the other writers in the book. And he talks about how Michelle McNamara was very self-aware about that, and she used to compare, or he used to compare in their conversations, to the difference between her and the man who wrote the kind of like definitive book on the Zodiac Killer, who introduced that and how the biggest difference there was two people with the exact same obsession but one who couldn't recognize that obsession in himself and another who could and it's just just really interesting because we've talked about this a lot because you're not into true crime Mm -hmm. whatever and when I'm talking about it to people you often feel a need to explain why you're interested in it and every time I say that you're interested in true crime to someone like, but you don't say Jen's interested in true crime. You say Jen's really into murder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's true. But you don't set it up well, and it's not entirely accurate. I think what's becoming very apparent on this episode is how much I like to rewrite history. <laughs> but I mean, you always then have to say, well, I'm really interested in true crime, and you have to explain it. Um that's true, because I do say that you. every time I see something about murder, it makes me think of you. <laughs> Which is, like, not a brand I want to cultivate. Too, ba- you, too bad, though. But you have. <laughs> I, but it makes me think about, like, why am I interested in it? And I think part of it, like, you had mentioned when we were talking about this book, that, like, in another life, I could have been, like, a Michelle yeah. McNamara. And I'm like, absolutely. Like, I went to journalism school with the goal of writing, like, investigative journalism she would have been, like, if I had read this book when I was in journalism school, much like when Stevie Cameron came to talk when I was in journalism right. school, I was and like, you were, you were very prone to, like, 
going down rabbit holes. Yeah, and part of it is, you know, you know, murder is certainly obviously, you know, murder and rape. It's dark. It's horrifying. It tends to be the most sensationalized of true crime. But like in general, a lot of that fascination comes with a problem solving, mystery, puzzle yeah. solving yeah, kind yeah. of desire. Um, you know, when I was eight years old, that was reading Nancy Drew books and kind of evolved. But I think this is probably the deepest we'll ever get on our podcast. But I think <laughs> part of it is... Don't pigeonhole us. We don't, we don't know what's coming. Also a way to kind of cope and struggle with trying to understand that darkness in humanity and what makes that kind of evil exist and what can we do to prevent that evil. I do highly recommend, like, people who like true crime, if you haven't already, um, the writer, Auntie Donahue, yeah. she's written a lot of pieces on her own interest in true crime and what it means, and I won't just, like, copy what she says, because basically she says exactly what I'm feeling, is that, you know, there is an ethics to consu- consuming true yeah. crime, and it is, you know, beyond the fascination you get with the sensational stuff, which we're all human. Yes, we do derive some form of entertainment, as strange as it might be to say, from that kind of sensational storytelling. Those kinds of stories are powerful and gripping, and they drag you in. But I think there is also that grappling with evil and that darkness in humanity, trying to understand it better. And also the best true crime is the true crime that inserts the humanity into it. So you have an understanding of the victims and their narratives. That empathy is there. Um, you know, whether it's coincidence or not, the best true crime I've ever read has been written by women. Mm-hmm. And I think that empathy comes a lot from that. Certainly not to exclude men from having empathy, but so much of the, these really horrific crimes, the victims are women and children. And I think there's a certain understanding of that experience that comes mm-hmm. from women writers. Um, Michelle McNamara does a great job of it. I was going to um, say, I think that that is very evident in this book yeah. is she gives a lot of um, care to the victims. And um, I think y- you do feel like a lot, the humanity is definitely there. And especially like Debbie, the character Debbie, like, yes. oh my gosh, I broke my yeah. heart, her story. And um, I didn't expect that in a, from a true crime book to like, to feel like, Oh, I, I really I feel for these for these victims in a way that like I feel like I know them and I feel like I understand their stories in a way that you generally don't think you could yeah. from a, a victim of something That's like that. Another reason why I would recommend to anyone who's listening who's interested in true crime, why I would recommend that on the farm book by Stevie Cameron too, because she takes such care. Um, in that case, a lot of the victims were all of the sex or the victims I think were sex workers. Um, in Vancouver, a lot of them were indigenous women, um, certainly a lot of women with addictions. And our stories, the way we talk about women and sex worker- workers and victims of sexualized crimes in general, you know, the way we talk about victims is not great generally. And she takes such care to humanize these people because they are humans, they deserve <laughs> to be treated right. as such. Yeah. Um, doesn't fall into those kinds of victim blaming tropes um you know and i'll put this in air quotes again you know high risk lifestyles right um in the way we talk about things and that's the kind of true crime i like 
to read because mm-hmm. it's powerful. But also another thing that um, and Donahue said that resonated me so much in one of her pieces that she wrote um, about true crime was that it should make you... <laughs> Benedict, I'm having a very serious conversation. Um, it should leave you feeling uncomfortable, yeah. right? If we're not... If we don't feel uncomfortable when we read about these things, then something's wrong, right? And, you know, the best podcasts I listen to, the best true crime books I read, um, they address these really serious issues and they grapple with them. Things like, you know, talking about my favorite murder, one of their big things is toxic masculinity ruins the party again. Like, they address that issue, you know, talk about domestic violence and addictions and mental health. And, you know, talk about the way we talk about sex workers and we approach that as industry and the women and men as well who work in that field. And, you know, the way we talk about sexual assault. These are all things that are kind of grappled with within the genre of true Mm -hmm. crime that I think when we think about it, and the reason why I get really defensive when people are like, why do you like that? Is because I think we tend to think of the most sensationalized versions of that. Right. And I think there's a lot of really good conversations and really good writing in the true crime genre. Is it hard to read and hard to listen to? Absolutely. Um, And is there some entertainment in it? I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm like above the fact, like you say, like you open I'll Be Gone in the Dark and you can't put it down. Like it's gripping. There's an entertainment in that. But... Um, I didn't realize I cared about this so much until I no, started like, talking about it. No, I'm like very it. impressed with you right now. I'm like, well, but, like, scene, we're over. I like, think <laughs> there is important work being done there, and I think it's fascinating women in particular because you see with like a podcast like My Favorite Murder, the fandom is huge by and large women, and it's a mm. huge like murderinos. Yeah, it's huge. They go on tour. They fill auditoriums. It's like the number one podcast, um, and it's mostly women and it makes you think about why are women drawn to this? Like, mm-hmm. what's the appeal there? And it, it's, like, I find it so interesting to, to think about that. Like, why has this become... It's so horrifying and dark. I mean, they do it with a humor that I think mm-hmm. is necessary to break up yeah. those really Agreed. dark, heavy conversations. And humor, of course, is like a classic coping <laughs> <laughs> mechanism. I think we know. <laughs> But, you know, I saw them live in Toronto last year and being in an auditorium that was probably 80% women talking about these horrific crimes, largely crimes against women. Mm-hmm. It's just such an interesting phenomenon. And, you know, Michelle McNamara's book is a part of that. Did her book leave me feeling super unsettled and uncomfortable? Yep. Uh, I'm glad I finished it. I will never read a book like this again. <laughs> At least not in the foreseeable future. It has not um, wet my appetite for true crime. I can tell you that for sure. Um, I am glad I read it, though. I think it is... I think it is... You're right. It is something about this, this cultural moment. Because I think ever since maybe Serial was what kind of... The podcast Serial really kicked off this true crime obsession. Because, you know, there now there is limitless true crime podcasts. Not always just about, like, rape and murder, but many other types of crime. Um... But I think that was kind of that was the the kickstart, the what's it called, the catalyst yeah. to this whole thing. And I have successfully avoided anything after cereal because even cereal, there's points where I was like jumpy, and I was like, I don't know if I can finish listening to this. Um, so I do think that 
I'm glad to be part of this cultural moment. I'm glad um, I'll, I'll remember this part of this time in history that we found that this killer was found. We. I did not find this killer. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Are we writing history again? <laughs> Put my name next to Paul Holes. Um, but yeah, so thanks for letting me borrow the book. You can take it back now. I never want to see it again. Fantastic. So that was a long-winded, uh, very serious conversation, but I, I, feel like, I feel like I understand you better than I ever did before. I'm smiling because <laughs> I feel like we've had a breakthrough, everyone. <coughs> we can close this therapy session down. <laughs> um, you can't see Jen, of course, but Jen is sitting in like a therapy chair. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> <laughs> With her legs crossed, a pen and a notebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think we can move on from this, can we not? We'll light it up a little. Yeah, let's go on to like a section like to call section. Oh my gosh, segment. I forgot the name of our podcast. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, called Millennials. <laughs> We've made it up. <laughs> um, and this is where we just talk about some things that we want to talk about that maybe we it's our whole podcast. Yeah. Um, but like maybe are specific to Millennials or that. Uh, are pre- pre- presented as challenges or issues or things we've ruined or started or I don't know, just generally very, very open category. <laughs> as they all are. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about something that I've been thinking about. Please. We're going to our old friend called Netflix. Um, <laughs> I feel like we got a good Netflix rant last episode. We did, but this is not a rant actually. This is more of like a, I just use... Um, Netflix as my example because uh, I watch everything on Netflix with captions. Um, I don't know if others do this. I know my best friend does. I do. You do as well. Okay. Um, and I used to love this. I thought it was like because you miss jokes and whatever. So I, especially if I'm trying to like do something else while I'm mm-hmm. uh, like washing dishes or something, and I can't hear everything. It's good to have captions. Um, but I will say recently. My parents were here, and they said no captions. They turned off the captions. They didn't like it. So I was like, all right, fine. Like, I can go without watching captions for a little while. Um, but I'm re-watching The Office, as I have been for the past couple of months. And I'm starting to feel like the jokes are ruined with the captions. Because I don't remember the jokes uh, in The Office. And I think, unlike other uh, sitcoms or other kind of comic shows... I think there is a reward for, like, like it almost is like stand-up. It's like you, you don't want to know the end of the joke because it's so absurd that you can't get there on your own. So it's not necessarily the scenarios are always funny, but it's also, like, the weird stuff that Michael says or, like, the kind of, like, the different phrasings and stuff like that. Um, and I think that by reading them ahead of them being delivered, I think, I, I think I'm ruining it for myself. I'm not finding it as funny as I thought I would. And I'm, I'm wondering, is this a thing? Have I stumbled upon, like, <laughs> do I have to stop watching with captions? At the risk of cutting this segment off <laughs> early, I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> like, it sounds like you answered your own question. I know, but, like, I just, I like being able to, like, <laughs> I'm I mean, sad I, about it. I also put <laughs> captions on. It is interesting, <laughs> kind of, to try to understand, like, obviously captions are very important for people who are hearing impaired who are watching television and the it must 
there must be a significant difference between good captioning and bad captioning. That I'm sure if you rely on the captions, checking my own privilege here, as yeah. someone who doesn't have to, you must be able to just, like, that must be very obvious. And I'm expecting that for something like The Office, where there's the joke setups and the punchlines, it must be incredibly difficult to do that mm-hmm. effectively. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know how you go about, like, writing the caption and the timing of the caption. So I don't think there's actually... Because I, I, I think about it a lot, and I just think that there is no actual... They don't time it with the joke. It's just the text on the on the screen. Like, it's very quick turnover, and... I, I'm not sure I've ever done it with the I don't, office. I don't think there's... I don't something th- like that. I don't think there's any, any thought, or very little thought, given to, like, the experience of the delivery of the joke versus just having the text on the screen. Um, Doing the bare minimum to yeah. get the caption in. But I definitely did stop watching. I used to watch uh, stand-up with captions, and I turned it off because I was like, what is the point? She was so mad. Like, I just, threw a, pen. just threw a pen. <laughs> I, was, I was watching um, Chris Rock's stand-up, which is very good. Uh, is it called Tambourine? Very good. Highly recommend it. But I was like, I cannot enjoy this at all because I know all the end of the jokes. I'm like, this is <laughs> the exact antithesis of what you want <laughs> for a stand-up show. Um, so I had to stop watching it for, sta- for stand-up. And may- may- now maybe I have to stop watching it for sitcoms or comedy shows in general. Maybe I can only watch, like, the history of High Clear Castle with <laughs> captions. Maybe that's... Because there are no surprises. Like you you know? mentioned that in our millennials. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would say there's, like, an obsession from, with millennials with, um, like history of like secrets of castles i feel like it's oh, a we whole... like secrets <laughs> but we also like castles i think who doesn't well it's true maybe that's that's universal a generation that no hated castles no we gen all live z, in a castle talk to us gen z <laughs> how do you young and <coughs> castles aren't they the i generation generation i, I? what is it is there a net the net generation net gen digital natives <laughs> <laughs> buzzword 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 <laughs> What are you? People younger than us. What is your generation? <laughs> I think we asked this last time, too. Oh, we remain God. perplexed and confused. We also clearly did no research on that. Obviously, I forgot about it. No, I think I did, but I could probably flip back in this notebook <laughs> and answer. <laughs> I'm not going to, though. Please don't. I do want to say, <clears throat> as someone who also watches things with captions, uh, my sister and I, uh, one of our running inside jokes, which I'm now going to share, so it'll be funny to no one, because that's how inside <laughs> jokes work. <laughs> we have an obsession with the movie um, Remember the Titans. We've always loved it. We could probably recite that movie. I don't know if I've ever line. seen it, to be honest with you. Soundtrack's on point. <laughs> um, Denzel Washington, of course. I disagree. Um, I think he's overrated. Okay, you are looking at me whoa. with the... With like shock and awe, perplexed. Did not come here to be attacked. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Gosling pre-fame. Don't like Ryan Gosling either. When I first saw, I can accept that. When I first saw <laughs> <laughs> the Titans in theaters, it was shortly after Breaker High, and okay, so he wasn't a well-known person yet, and so I, for many years, just referred to him as Breaker High guy in Remember the Titans. I mean, I think maybe maybe. Maybe unpopularly, but maybe everyone agrees with me that Breaker High was his best work. I'll 
think about it. I'll reflect on I it. I just want to put in here that my only... My main problem with Ryan Gosling is not really Ryan Gosling. It's that I hate The Notebook. I think it's a terrible movie. And I think the premise is terrible. And I don't really like... I mean, I... I don't mind Ryan Gosling in other movies. I don't mind what's her in the face. Amy Adams, is that her name? What's her name? What's Rebecca? Rachel McAdams. There you go. I don't mind her other <laughs> stuff either. <laughs> like, she's great. But just the obsession around the notebook as like this most romantic story of all time. False. Don't like it. The rain scene, no thank you. Uh, so that is where my hatred of Ryan Gosling comes from. He is excellent in Crazy Stupid Love. That is a great movie. I would argue that's because Steve Grell's in it. But I digress. Please continue. <laughs> I'll watch it with captions on. <laughs> I actually think I might own that movie. <laughs> in Remember the Titans, and I actually think this might have been a glitch on our DVD copy, because I don't think we actually had captions on. I think at one point it just glitches and turns the captions on. Okay. It's a football movie, so there's a lot of, like, football players in huddles with, like, indistinguishable... Murmuring. Murmuring. And there's one point where it just captions it as rhythmic panting. And for some reason, Uh. my sister and I found this so hilarious. (laughs) But it's now like a point of reference for us. Rhythmic panting. Just referencing rhythmic panting. So I think it must be challenging as someone who writes captions to try to accurately... To be fair, rhythmic panting was a fairly accurate... (laughs) caption of what was happening. One of my favorite um, Tumblr, like, memes or whatever, is a picture of Spock, like, from, like, the original Star Trek. Like, with his head down. And it says, sobbing mathematically. (laughs) (laughs) Says a lot. (laughs) So you're a caption writer. Who's watching this? Or listening to this, watching this? (laughs) If you're watching this, let us know. (laughs) Yeah, if you're watching this, can I have tape? I distinctly have tape over the camera on my computer. Um, if you're listening to this and you write captions, I'm, like, fascinated how, like, how, how? does it work? <laughs> and I've noticed sometimes in captions, um, because I walk, again, I've started paying more and more attention over the past couple of months. Sometimes they just leave words out, because it's, I guess it won't fit in the screen in the amount of time that they have the person says it, so they'll just, like, it doesn't alter the meaning necessarily, but they leave entirely words out, or they'll spell things differently, or, um... One thing that that bothers me, surprise, surprise, is when the fonts change. Not a fan of that. So, I don't know. I think there might be, like, a Netflix captioning font. And there's, like, a font that, like, if it was captioned elsewhere is used. I'm not sure, but it's different for different things. There might be a universal, like, accessibility font that gets used for closed captioning. Maybe, because things that are on, like, Netflix originals, their caption font is different than, like, than The Office or, like, Friends. So maybe it's, like, from, like, a network show, their font is different. I don't know, but in The Office, there's some episodes that have, like, the Netflix font and some that have, like, the NBC font, and it drives me mental, because... Which one is the preferred? The Netflix font. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the NBC one's, like, all capitals, mm. whereas the Netflix one has, like, the proper punctuation and, like, capitalization and etc. And generally, they don't leave words out, so... <laughs> <laughs> I just realized what a, a nonsensical thing to complain about. <laughs> like, who cares? Well, we can build off that <laughs> to my. So we should actually rephrase this from like a millennial discussion to like when the millennials just become grumpy old people and don't want to complain. About <laughs> transitioning from like 
young and entitled to like middle-aged and grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Because back in my day, in our last episode, we discussed the many things that millennials are accused of killing. And shortly after that, I was browsing through Twitter, as I do. And I found an article that accused millennials of getting rid of top sheets on beds. <laughs> and my immediate reaction was like, this is preposterous. This is insane. There's like, no, this is ridiculous. And so I shared it in my outrage, just saying, I think I tweeted it at you. and was like, Jill, I need to talk about this. I have so many feelings. To which one of my good friends, who I thought I knew, <laughs> oh, no. responded and said, yeah, of course, I don't use the top sheet. Who uses the top sheet? And my brain, so I felt betrayed. Did I not respond to this? I believe you did. Because I also think I told you that I don't use the top sheet <gasps> either. What? <laughs> what world are we living in? So I will say that my t- top sheet abandonment is only several months old. Um, when I came back from the UK... You jumped on the millennial trend. I did. <laughs> when I turned 30. Uh, no. Uh, when I came back from the UK, I noticed that, like, in the UK, the beds where I stayed, I stayed in two different people's homes, Airbnb, and both of them didn't have a top sheet. They just had the... What's it called? The fitted sheet. There we go. Look at me with my linen terminology. <laughs> and then, like, a comforter or whatever. And I... Th- I at first, I was like, oh, they, they forget the sheet? And then I was like, no, this obviously is intentional. Two people did it in a row. And I was like, this is way better. Like, I much prefer it. What? I this is napkins and paper towels all, all over again. again. Um, I prefer it. I feel that a sheet just gets tangled up in like a... If, you, if you're like a, a mover in your sleep, which I am, it gets tangled up. It also untucks, so you gotta tuck it back in every day. You tuck your sheet in? To the foot... I have a footboard, so I have to tuck it into the footboard. Oh, no, I wouldn't even if I had a footboard. But even if I didn't, I, I used to tuck it underneath the mattress. <laughs> no, you got, you gotta have the freedom. <laughs> See, I, I disagree. I don't like that. I don't like the kind of. I, I like to be able to feel like I'm, you know, in like oh, a like, opposite. Like a wow, very... this is. <laughs> <laughs> if my bed is tucked in, like I get. If you go to a hotel or something. Oh, I love it. Oh, I've got to kick that out. Like, like, like a little burrito, just no. slide right in. Um, I I when I got rid of the top sheet, I was just like freedom like I just felt like I didn't have to tuck it in anymore I didn't have to like and I often felt too warm with like too many layers like I'd rather just have I have a thin summer comforter that's very was quite thin and that's all I need if I needed something over me or I just have no sheet at all I just feel like I feel like like I've hit the sweet spot with my with my um bedtime fascinating bedclothes I am also a mover in my sleep so yes my top sheet does become Disarray. It's like, a disarray. In disarray. But I think that's how I prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I can, I haven't seen your bedroom because every time I've been at your house, you close the door because it was like it's such a mess. It's a mess. Um, but I have a feeling that it's very different from mine. <laughs> sure. How do you make your bed? Is the question. How do I make my bed? No. How often? Oh, how often? <sighs> like fully make it? <laughs> like how? Yeah, I don't mean like you like take your sheets off. Or I mean, how often do you like make it look like it like it's um brand new? Yeah, fresh. yeah, probably twice a week. Twice a week. Okay, that's actually more than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I just assume that you never make it. I mean, it's rare. <laughs> My parents are listening to this. <laughs> They'll feel that deep in their souls. <laughs> 
Um, it's rare, but, like, if I'm going to be, if I want to, like, read in bed or anything like that, then I'll, like, make it up nice. Like, I always half make it up at the end of the day, right before I get in and destroy it. I mean, I think we all do that. But, like, a full, nice and tidy with, like, my extra pillows and all that stuff, probably, like, twice a week max. Okay. But top sheets, forever. They're so cozy. It's like a... It's like having your own, like, silky, nice comfort blanket. I mean, I think we can, we can agree to disagree on this, because we're never going to share a bed, so what's I the just, difference? I didn't realize, I thought that article was so preposterous. But really, you're the crazy so one. So, I'm the crazy one. That's not that surprising, if we really think about it. <laughs> I'm going to get up and walk out. You can't, because we have one thing left to talk about. <laughs> I'm take this microphone with me. That's... Root. Be next segment with Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't listen. <laughs> Unsubscribe. <laughs> Unsub. Also, the picture of us is so great on our on the the podcast. Like, why would you want to make a new one? Like, I'm so straight great. up just putting a red X over your face. <laughs> Holy Jen! That's nasty. Probably get more listeners because that implies a certain amount of drama. <laughs> That Are I you think saying people that people for. listen for you only? No. <laughs> they probably probably unsubscribe and stop listening, but I think I might get an initial bump I of think like, people listen for the banter. I don't, the I, don't, I don't think it's one of us individually. I think it's the it's the rapport. The rappert. The rappert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a gog. <laughs> I'm confident you are about this. <laughs> Sprinkle oh. more inside jokes in. <laughs> I think we should move on to talking about Harry Potter because I think you have something to weigh in on, then I have something to add. Oh. But we haven't talked about this, so I don't know. No. I'm guessing. <laughs> well, I'm guessing. <laughs> you will care very little about what I'm about I to also say. just need everyone to know that Jen and I don't really talk about the stuff we're going to talk about before the podcast. No. <laughs> well, sometimes we give a bit of a heads up. Like I said, Jen, like three weeks ago, I want to talk about this book because... I have feelings about it, but otherwise, today I was like, let's talk about captioning. She was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't go any further into it. (laughs) Though I was really wondering where that was going to (laughs) go. I wanted to make a confession because I believe in our New Year's themed podcast. This feels a bit like couple therapy right now. That I had made a commitment to let go. Oh, yes, you did. All things associated with the Harry Potter universe, except the original books and films. You did do because this. Because I can't make an emotional investment yeah, in I think things. I think what you said was you, that you're ready to do it. Yes. I don't think you made a commitment, but you said... Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I think you said, I'm ready to let go. And I truly thought I was. <laughs> what happened, Jen? And then I made the mistake what of watching the trailer... For the new Fantastic Beasts movie. Oh, Jen. Now, I think I said in that podcast my feelings on Fantastic Beasts. You did. Which are largely negative. Yes. <laughs> and that they f- it feels like a burden on me as a fan <laughs> of Harry Potter. Like, it feels... I knew walking in... I walked in... I might have also confessed in that episode, but I was a little bit drunk when I saw Fantastic Beasts. But I walked in with a sense of, like, impending doom. Yeah. Because I had just barely recovered from the Hobbit saga. Of, like, <laughs> I've now had to watch these movies for three years. Yeah. 
why there are three movies, no one knows. Wasn't no. needed. This was something I loved in my childhood and loved the original Lord of the Rings movies. Peter Jackson done lost his mind. <laughs> but once I'd seen the first one, I was like, well, now I'm committed for three years because yeah. I've got to see this out. Yeah. And the minute I made the decision to see the first Fantastic Beast movies, I was like, now I've done it again. Yeah. And there's going to be five of them. What a horror show. <laughs> so I was feeling in a good place in January and I said, I'm, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to say goodbye. Yeah. I don't owe J.K. Rowling anything. <laughs> I don't have to pretend she's a good screenwriter. She's not. She's terrible. I don't have to do this. And then they released the trailer and I watched it. And I had so many feelings. Oh, and Jen. now I'm mad at myself because I'm you know probably going to go watch you know, this it. Is, this is like codependence. This is the constant return. This is like Stockholm Syndrome. This is what's happening right now. Truly. Now, one positive feeling was I actually think the casting of Jude Law as young Albus Dumbledore is good. I agree. I think it is very, very good. Like, pro them. Does it make up for the horrid casting of Johnny Depp as Grindelwald? No. no. This is where most of my feelings come from. <laughs> Other than the general uselessness of, like, no one wants a Fantastic Beast movie. Did anyone want this? Harry yeah. Potter fans listening to this. Did anyone care about Newt Scamander and his life story? To want five movies about it? Not I. No. no. Not a single person. Did we want a movie about Dumbledore's adventures? Maybe. That could be interesting. There's a story there. Does it need to be told in a movie? Probably not. But there's more there to work with, I think. Right. Did we want that story told under the guise of a Newt Scamander <laughs> Fantastic Beast? Definitely like, not. If you're going to tell... If it's going to be about Dumbledore, just make the Dumbledore movie. I think that what we actually wanted was Lily and James Potter's childhood. Like that, those years at Hogwarts. I would want to see that Maybe. movie. Maybe. More than, I don't really care about Dumbledore's past, yeah. to be honest with you. Well, that's the thing. Like, I feel like there's something interesting there, but like, we've already seen the Dark Wizard battle story. Yeah. So we don't necessarily need it again. No. Um, unless you just want to go into full fan fiction mode and actually address the Dumbledore Grindelwald love story. We know that's not going to happen. And Why wouldn't it happen? Because it's. I don't think J.K. Rowling would make that So movie. I want to talk about J.K. Rowling because I just recently finished listening to all seven Harry Potter audiobooks again. Since last fall, I've been, I've been reading them, listening to them. I mean, a treat, truly, from start to finish. Um, at, those books hold up for sure. The writing... J.K. Oh, Rowling is an incredible... Incredible writer and like anyone, of novels, of novels. She's a great novel storyteller. Please don't write movies. <laughs> if you're listening, Joanne, you're rich. You don't have to stick with what you're great at. Also, where's our fourth Robert Galbraith novel? That's what I want to know. Focus on that book. Um, but I, the more I'm thinking about it, and um. This kind of came from conversations with my team at work because we're all Harry Potter fans at my office. I mean. You'll be hard-pressed to find someone who isn't, I think, generally, like, beyond a certain age. Of a generation, yeah. Um, was, there are very many good female characters in Harry Potter. Like, I actually, and my friend actually posted about this, independently of me, uh, she was writing about something else, and she posted on Facebook about, um, she thinks that, like, 
that Molly Weasley has done so much emotional labor. So the amount of emotional labor that Molly Weasley does in book five, six, seven um, is unparalleled in the rest of the books. And, I, and that made me think more about, like, I think J.K. Rowling hates her female characters. Because we look at, like, Hermione. She never gets what, she's, what she deserves, really, in those books. Like, she does all of the work. And, like, Harry gets all the glory. Who does all the brain work? Hermione. Who does all of the emotional work? Hermione. Um, we look at... Uh, she doesn't um, even get to have fun with the handsome Quidditch player because everyone makes Ron, her feel bad about oh, it. Oh, and I, you know what? I like Ron, and Ron gets the shaft in the movies, and he gets the shaft oh, in the Oh, I mean, I'm team the Ron child. and Hermione, but... Uh, but I'm also team Ron. Like, I think that Ron doesn't get the fair... Like, I think he's a very funny character. He's very smart. He's very sensitive. Like, or tries to be sensitive. He learns. He definitely grows throughout the series. And you can st- you can tell that by the end. Um, but, I mean, if you look at, like, Tonks, she has to deal with all of, like, Lupin's weird bullshit. And then we look at Cho. She gets the shaft as well. And we look at McGonagall, she probably is the, of all the characters, the one who has the most kind of agency and the most um, longevity in terms of, she really kind of powers through and she has a lot of, she gets a great kind of finale at the end of her, when she takes an umbrage, which we all wanted. Um, but realistically, like, she, the rest of the female characters, they all kind of suffer without much reward. And the reward is often like a man. Like, is that a like, I don't know. Not realistically. Um, even Madame Maxine, her reward is Hagrid. <laughs> like, is that a reward? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, I say that being like, I never really thought about that perspective. Because I also never really critically analyzed them before because why would I? I couldn't. I, I didn't have the ability to do that because I loved them so much. Um, but in thinking about it, I, I don't think that the women get a fair shot in the series at all. But Aunt Petunia, I mean, talk about being oppressed by your ridiculous spouse. Like, what a man. And your ridiculous son. Yeah, yeah. What I mean, oh, come on, poor Aunt Petunia. The patriarchy is alive and well in the Dursley house. I guess, you know, Lily, I suppose, is the one that, uh, she's the one who tells off in that flashback where we see the flashback with her and Snape and James. Again, also, guys, spoilers, but I mean... It's been like get over it. like yeah, like twenty years. Come on, guys. Um, she she really has a lot of command of both of of herself, and she gets to kind of uh, shoot down James and Snape. And I think that that's maybe a mo- one of the only moments of like female power in the entire series. Um, even like in Quidditch, when Ginny becomes this like professional Quidditch player. And we still talk about how good Harry is. Like, he's always all the focus, all the attention. Was he even that good? I I think... I don't like, know a lot about this made-up sport. <laughs> <laughs> you don't follow it religiously? <laughs> I just feel like we, Harry Potter is, in general, uh, mediocre. Like... Oh. Yeah. And I think I always felt like that. I mean, but I think that's part of... The storyline, I suppose, but I guess I never really, I never really thought he, about it. Like, like part of a major plot point is that he's potentially interchangeable. Yeah, I know, but I just mean like, even at the end, you know, and and I feel like people are always trying to make him feel better about it. like, and I do think that Harry struggles with that. He's like, I'm not special, I'm not whatever, and he isn't, and we know that. But I think there aren't many characters who are. I suppose is what it is. Is it maybe Dumbledore? But then 
bye-bye, Dumbledore. And so, at the end, we don't really get... I mean, the only kind of great moment we get from Molly Weasley is when she kills Bellatrix. And she kills another woman. Like, you know, it's not even like she gets to kill... I mean, Bellatrix is a horrible character, of course. You know, happy to see her go, but... You know, it's just... I don't like... It becomes this, like, woman against woman thing, which I don't like. And then... um, I guess... I don't know, I just think that J.K. Rowling maybe is not super sensitive to women characters. I think we probably can see that as well in her, like, her Robert Galbraith, uh, Cormoran Strike series. Like, her women are, like, they're slow building. Like, they just kind of take, we're three books in, it's only three books in where the, where Robin, the character Robin, gets to, like, do anything. Um, so, Joanne! I don't get enough McGonagall. I think that's a real oversight. McGonagall, I'm gonna say it, superior to Dumbledore. As a headmaster to that school. Um, I'm not yeah. going to go into <laughs> some kind of canonical magical prowess <laughs> analysis. Right. As a headmaster, headmistress of a school. <laughs> McGonagall every time. McGonagall is the mother that Harry didn't have. I know he has Molly Weasley, but like, McGonagall raised that boy. <laughs> <laughs> she also, she is in many ways... Um, she's more level-headed than Molly is. Like, I mean, I should say less less emotional in the sense of she's... Molly is very affectionate and she's very over-the-top with her feelings, um, which, again, is a character choice. And there are people who like that. I'm probably like that, so I'm okay with that. But it's also... McGonagall is much more level-headed. She's much more... Um, she doesn't react in the same way. So when she does react, it's important. Like, And I think that McGonagall, in the fifth book, is my favorite character of, uh, you know, in the whole series maybe, just particularly that book, because the way she deals with Umbridge is just like the way she holds herself in that relationship is amazing like, we've all been there where we have somebody who we just cannot be around, we can't work with them, everything they do makes us want to scream they're ridiculous, they are nonsensical they are evil in some cases Um, and they just everything they do makes you want to just you know, flip the table. But McGonagall manages to, like, maintain that relationship with with dignity, with poise, with grace, with also, like, some snark, and some... She really is the superior person in that relationship. Truly. And her relationship with Harry, like, in the final book when Harry defends McGonagall... Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. She deserves it. Yeah. Someone. Give this lady <laughs> some assistance. So, She's been... Holding this thing together. She she <laughs> is... Sheer force of will. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like, she is definitely um, an underrated character in that... I mean, I think lots of people like McGonagall. Like, nobody... I want to see young McGonagall. Scratch this. Get rid of... First of all, <laughs> Crimes of Grindelwald. Terrible movie name. <laughs> we all agree on that. <laughs> Get rid of that storyline. I want to see... What is young what? McGonagall up Minerva to? Minerva McGonagall. What is Minerva up to? Give me that movie. I also love her relationship with Sybil at the end. Yeah. She really turns it out at the end. And she's like, she shows her loyalty. She shows her, like, her goodness. She, she shows her ethics. She shows her morality. Um, one thing I'm surprised about, and this is not related at all to J.K. Rowling or the book, is that I listened to the audiobooks and narrated by Stephen Fry. Truly exceptional experience. Like, if you haven't listened to them, Please do. Like, some of the best narration, some of the best storytelling. Just, I mean, delightful in every way. Um, but I guess I expected 
McGonagall to have a Scottish accent since she is McGonagall. Um, nope, nope, just uh, normal, normal accent. I mean, like a little bit higher pitched, I suppose, because she's a woman. But um, and I know that Maggie Smith in the movies is not Scottish, but I always pictured her as a Scottish yeah professor because there are no Scots really in the book. Otherwise, I mean, Cho in the movies is Scottish. I can't even remember that. I since so long since in the movies. <laughs> I don't like the movies very much. I like the last two, I suppose. They're probably the best of all of them, I think. Yeah. I'm still very fond of Prisoner of Azkaban as a movie. Uh, I think as a movie in itself I like it, but the, that's my favorite book. And I, yeah, me as well. <laughs> like, but to me, like the book and the movie are just so separate that like they're so different. There's some choices in that book that made me really, and in, in that movie that made me really upset because, particularly the shrunken head in the night bus, I hated that thing. Oh yeah, it's so annoying. And I remember Jake Rowling saying, and this and this is like this is a good indicator of why she shouldn't do movies. And I remember her saying that she thought that that was one of the best things she wished she had thought you about. You know it. what it is? It is the Jar Jar Binks of Harry Potter yes. universe. And yes. And maybe J.K. Rowling and George Lucas should just. Be ref- like people need to be able to say no to no. them. <laughs> she was like, "Oh, I wish I thought about it. it." Was genius, and I said, "Um, that was the worst part of that entire movie." So disagree. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Final plea to J.K. Rowling: Not too late to get rid of Johnny Depp. <laughs> Bring back Colin Farrell. I know you haven't seen the movie, Jill, but he was such a better villain. Oh, I, I hate Johnny. Depp. I mean, other than Johnny Depp being allegedly. A trash human being. <laughs> I say allegedly because allegedly, but, but actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also just think he's like not great as an actor. Well, I think his his time has just passed. Like he he's a caricature of himself at this point. Yeah, and Colin Farrell. I like Colin Farrell. Again, spoiler alert for Fantastic <laughs> Beasts. Not that anyone cares. <laughs> <laughs> the fake out of the first movie is that. You think Colin Farrell is the villain, but and then he turns out to be Grindelwald in disguise, right. and that's actually Johnny Depp, and I've never felt greater disappointment <laughs> when he basically, like, <laughs> does the magical version of ripping off his mask, and it's, like, <laughs> sinister, kind of quiet, yeah. Colin Farrell doing his best, like, kind of under-the-radar villain, rips it off, and it's like, whoa, cartoon <laughs> character Johnny Depp with, like, crazy eyes, and, like, <laughs> with terrible hair. And I just no. Did you, know? you like? And did also, you make a noise? Probably. <laughs> and the thought of young Dumbledore being into that—I mean, I don't want to comment on his taste in men, but <laughs> it just no. Especially, especially Jude Law, who is like—I think that's a great casting. It's great casting. J.K. Rowling story doesn't check out. That pairing, no. Anyways, <laughs> don't make movies. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I'm. Emotionally invested again, and I'm angry about it. Okay, so we'll check in again for Jane to see the movie. <laughs> when is it? Does it come out in November? I don't know. I think it comes out in no- October or November. And I am not going to see it, because I didn't see the first one. And Oh, don't see it. I don't, I, I don't really see movies anymore, but that's a different conversation for a different day. I mean, we all know I don't watch movies a lot. Anyway, I just prefer to watch TV slash YouTube. So. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is where we ended today. We didn't even check it with Nacho Flay, but to be honest with you, I haven't been following him. <gasps> okay. Oh, that is not true, actually. Oh. 
I forgot. Uh, let me do There's a quick... twists and turns to this podcast. Um, I believe that Nacho had a caption contest for his last photo on Instagram. Did you enter it? I didn't because I wasn't really ready. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um he posted a picture of his Bobby, his father, mm-hmm. and Nacho at the kitchen counter and it's a hilarious picture cuz Bobby's talking to Nacho and Nacho is like looks like he's like shocked. Um and the caption that won I think was actually I will say, I mean, I don't want to judge people's relationships. Um what? Like the winner of the caption contest was a friend of Bobby's. Like he he films um, beat Bobby Flay. Like I think he's part so of the crew. So you think this was rigged? Yeah, but that's okay. It's not it's not a bad caption. So the caption is Bobby. What's your signature dish? Nacho. Nacho business. <laughs> I mean, classic nacho cheese joke. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the picture is great. The caption could be. Could be better. I'm sure there are better ones. I did. The original picture is now taken down and replaced with the caption. So, which is stupid. Maybe he could just put the new caption. Again, Bobby Flay. Jill is available to be the social media manager of this account. I would quit my job for this. <laughs> I just want. I want to just pet the magnificent Nacho. Want to roll my fingers to his fur. I want to see what that feels like. Cause he's so fluffy and beautiful. I want to know how he handles the summer. Does he lose all his fur? I want that update. Oh, that is a great question. Because I said that with more enthusiasm than I just. I was like, felt, you didn't mean that. But you don't care. I'm mildly intrigued. I know that my cat, my part Maine Coon, loses big chunks of fur. What is Nacho's hair loss like? <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> what is this podcast? Thanks for listening. (laughs) We'll catch you next time. Bye. Follow us on our social media if you want to. No, we don't post ever, but follow us anyway. At next segment, JJ. Send us our coat of arms. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Also, any other gifts? (laughs) Wax seals if you have them. Bye.